When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I'm sure your parents feel the same way. There's this push and pull of preservation, right, of your culture when you come and immigrate here and you want your kids to be good Americans and to assimilate whatever in whatever form that makes sense, right? But you also don't want to lose the, the pieces that made them who they are. So it's interesting. Hi, I'm Kim Tai. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to Kim Tai, founder of Ganesh Space, a mindfulness organization that's dedicated to the practice of radical inclusivity. They offer events, classes, training, and most recently, they have really great virtual yoga classes online. But Sharon, you know the number one thing I learned in this episode? What did you learn? The best Vietnamese food is not in New York City. Shut up. It's in Houston, (laughs) Texas. And having been to Houston, I did not know that. And I really had no plans to go back to Houston. But it's harder for me to go to Vietnam. Yeah. Now that I'm a parent. Yeah. So I'm going to Houston. I'll come with you because she was right. I love the Vietnamese food in Houston. So that's absolutely true. One of my favorite stories that Kim told us was how she grew up thinking that she had to be an engineer or rather that her parents wanted her to be an engineer. So she tried really hard to do that and it became very apparent that that wasn't her path. And her mom kind of looked at her and she was like, yeah, honey, we knew that already, that you weren't cut out to be an engineer. (laughs) Wait, did your parents want you to be an engineer? They wanted me to be a doctor and I became a not doctor. (laughs) (laughs) I too am not a doctor. Yes, nor an engineer, right? Even though you studied it. The other thing that she shared with us was her very personal and heartwarming experience of coming out to her parents for the first time. Well, it's not just heartwarming. What I loved about the story was there was an insane practicality to her mom's (laughs) response. I loved Um, her mom's response. I think through this entire show, I'm starting to fall in love. And when I say fall in love, like motherly love, fall in love with all the moms of all our guests. They all sound pretty awesome. Yeah. The parents. I feel like we should do a parents episode, parents of model minorities and, you know, get them all on here. Or that that should be the teaser quote for every episode. (laughs) (laughs) What mom said. (laughs) Or dad, or dad. Right. Totally. And, you know, yeah, I just, you know, there's such a honesty and humility that someone like Kim brings to the show. So I don't know what else we can say. I say we just go right into it. Please meet our friend. Yeah. Please meet our friend, Kim. Kim. 
Tai. So today we're here talking to Kim Tai. Welcome to the show, Kim. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's good to have you. Well, okay. Every time I say Kim's name, and yeah. I caught Sharon doing this earlier, you say the full name, Kim Tai, every time. Kim Tai. Kim Tai. It's got a Two good sil- ring to it. Mm-hmm. It's the two syllable names. No one would ever do that for Sharon Lee Tony. Nope, never. But I have I have hope that they might maybe in the future. <laughs> <laughs> we never know. It's quarantine time. It's strange times. Maybe multiple syllable names are going to come back into fashion. You know? New trends will begin <laughs> exactly, during quarantine. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. So Kim, let's start off with hearing a little bit about an early childhood memory of yours. Yeah, sure. So I was thinking about some fun model minority facts about me yesterday, just prepping for our conversation. And and one of the memories that came up, actually, my partner reminded me of it, because sometimes you forget the ones that are that are not as fun, was that I'm Vietnamese American. And in fourth grade, someone from the administration, the, my school came in and pulled me out and said that they wanted to put me into ESL. And oh my God. I'm bilingual, speak completely fluent English. I actually minored in English in college, and I consider myself a writer. I wrote for <laughs> many publications just yeah. to give you some context of future Kim. But I showed up in the ESL class, and the teacher was like, I mean, of course, it wasn't her decision, right? And she was like, why are you here? And I was like, I don't know, right? Wait, and- wait, wait, back up. Where, where did you grow up? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a Western suburb outside of Houston, Texas. So yeah, so Houston's really diverse and great. The small little town I grew up in, I was lucky to see another Asian person for a while, you know? So I showed up and she was like, why are you here? And I was like, I don't know. And I was, what, eight then? I had no sense of the sort of microaggression that I just got or very, very much the discriminatory aggression I just got from the school. And apparently they had just identified my last name and said, oh, well, she's she's Asian. She must not speak English. Right. And so the teacher was actually incredibly kind. And she was like, I'm so sorry. And I think in the moment I had felt I knew something was wrong about it because of the way that she reacted, even though I didn't fully understand at that age, right? And then she was actually, she goes, well, since you're here, I'm actually wondering if you could help me out because there is actually a Vietnamese girl here who doesn't speak any English. So I wound up spending the rest of the day being her translator. And that was really an odd fun day for me that turned that started off in a in a very kind of painful way and I kept in touch with that teacher for a couple years and she was just really grateful for my time because the girl was like I haven't been able to to communicate or say anything to this teacher and I've been feeling really lonely and I'm glad that you're here so we could at least at least talk so that's a formative <laughs> childhood memory to start us <laughs> off on a positive foot. That is, yeah, that, that is definitely some story. I really thought it was going to go to a dark place and you ended it so nicely. I was like, <laughs> but I have to ask a question about Texas and Vietnamese people. So of most of the Vietnamese people that I know, or Vietnamese Americans, I should say that I know came through Texas. Is there mm-hmm. a reason like cheaper flights from Saigon to China? To- <laughs> Direct flight oh, into Houston? Is that what it is? <laughs> I should ask my parents that later today. They would love that. <laughs> so not to get like totally nerd on like some geographical facts, but like Houston's the second largest Vietnamese population in the country after LA. And then I think 
I think there's Washington, D.C. or in the sort of Virginia areas, the third. And my theory has always been because we're near the coast, right? It's like the closest you can get to really miserable, humid weather, right? And it's not rice paddy fields, but it's still there. And I also think Houston's a really great place to raise a family and it's cheap. And if you're also, if you're able to tap into sort of the oil town of it, it's a really, really great place to make a living. So that's always been my theory, but... Yeah. To answer your question, I think my parents originally, when they immigrated, they moved to Miami, also another miserably humid coastal town. And they were just like, (laughs) and they were like, everyone's moving to Houston. Let's move to Houston. And that was the logic. And so there you go. That's where I grew up and that's where I was born. (laughs) It's fantastic. I love Miami. It's funny that you describe it as a miserably humid town. And I'm like, (laughs) oh yeah, that's like vacation town. Totally. (laughs) Totally. What did your parents want you to be when you grew up? Oh, man, this is such a funny story. So I thought my parents wanted me to be an engineer. I had convinced myself of this. And by the way, I'm terrible at math and science, despite the stereotype, right? And I went to college and majored in it and started failing miserably. And at engineering. Yeah, at engineering. It was mechanical. I couldn't you're get You're a bad through. Asian. Exactly. You're, exactly. You're a bad Asian. <laughs> Don't play the piano, all the things. But yeah, and I came home and I was shrouded in shame. And I was like, Mom, I'm not, I'm failing. I don't think I can do this. I'm miserable. I'm un- unhappy. And she was just like, Of course you are. I don't know why you ever did that. And I was like, What? <laughs> And I was like, you, you're the one who wanted me to be an engineer. And I was like, I never said that. I don't know where you got right. that. And, <laughs> which is so interesting. And I was like, whoa. And she was like, maybe you thought that, but I think you've always been a writer. And she was like, but please do something and not just so you'll be able to feed yourself. And so... So yeah, I wound up transitioning majors and studied journalism, which is pretty much where my career started and evolved into later. But it's just funny, the stories we tell ourselves, right? Of what we think we're supposed to be. Yeah. And in in your case, it's most of us grew up in Asian households where the parents definitely told us to be the engineer, the doctor, the lawyer. But you just kind of made that assumption for your parents. Like I find that to be pretty ironic. And then for them to be like, what is is she doing? She's clearly not right. an engineer. Exactly. She's like, of course you're failing science. I'm not surprised by this at all. But I've come back to this theme a couple of times on this show specifically. And I think it's I've become more woke to being a parent because our parents who came over, all three of our parents who came over, these aspirations were the best they could articulate, right? Of what yeah. they thought success was. And our idea of success is very different. It's like, chase your dreams, be true to yourself, don't be an asshole, all those things. It's this idea of, okay, I'm going to totally name drop something really quick. There is this, have you read this book, The Best We Could Do? It's about a Vietnamese American family coming over. No, I've never even heard of it. It's a graphic novel. I accidentally read it a year ago, and it's featured in this Huffington Post article that, that came out recently. But again, the premise of the name, the best we could do. It's I think as a parent, I just have it easy. I've got the internet. I speak the language. Sure, there is a little bit of racism. It's not too bad because I grew up in the society. I don't have the accent, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So the idea of being an engineer or a doctor, again, I don't agree with it. <laughs> I have those choices and those recommendations for my parents, but it was the best they could do, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's the most that they could dream for their kids. 
And in Kim's case, the most she could dream for herself that she thought her mom wanted her to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Until she was like, mirror. <laughs> nope. Right. <laughs> How are you different from that little girl in Houston? Oh man, deep question, Ramon. Yeah, we don't we don't mess around. Yeah. We don't mess around. Yeah, we, we get right to the exactly. right to the meat of it. I love it. I would expect nothing less from a model minority podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I poured myself a glass of rose for this. How am I different? I'm just a ton more confident. I think growing up, I had this like very very intense feeling of wanting to be liked, right? Like we all do. But I think as more time has passed and living in New York, being the beautifully vibrant and diverse city it is, I've, I've started to recognize that some of my deep desire of being liked was also me wanting to fit in and to be whitewashed, right? And to make fun of a lot of the things that I'm really proud of now or at the expense of or make jokes at the expense of. And so I think in a lot of ways, I've become just more comfortable in, I think, my identity in all aspects of it. I literally Trump check all the Trump boxes. <laughs> I'm like, mm-hmm. check her mm-hmm. out. I don't like her. And then also, and I also think that I've, I've, the beautiful thing about, I think, this conversation that we're having is the vulnerability, right? I think, I think often in the generation of our parents and a lot of our culture, vulnerability isn't always embraced. And I think that's something that I've worked a lot on and kind of taken away those shields to just be myself as much as I can anyways. So that's so beautiful. I'm going to fast forward to today because you do something kind of neat. And I actually haven't, I haven't, honestly, I haven't explored it myself, but I've seen you post it a lot in some of the discussion boards that you and I are part of. So tell us more about Ganesh space. Yeah. Is it Ganesh sure. space or Ganesh space? Yeah, Ganesh space. Dude, remover of obstacles. Shay, yes. No, I know. I know. I know that Ganesh is the remover of obstacles. He's the he's an elephant and he removes obstacles and all of those things. But You're totally reading from Ganesh's Wikipedia. No, I'm not. <laughs> I have a yoga I have a yoga certification, which means that I'm kind of sort of tapped in. <laughs> oh boy. So you know. as a as a as a born and raised Hindu, don't get me started on. I know. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I said it that way. I love it. <laughs> Robin, by the way, I want to know your thoughts on never have I ever. Have you watched it yet? Okay. I hate to get tangential on this, but it's worth talking about. And then we will come back to Ganesh. Oh, for sure. I want to. Last night, (laughs) last night I was talking to an actress who's going to be on the show. And we spent like 20 minutes talking about this show. And she's Indian American. Mm -hmm. It is the same way. I don't know if you've heard this from your doctor friends that Scrubs is the most accurate doctor show Mm -hmm. because it depicts the absurdity of the reality. That show is Never Have I Ever on Netflix. Mindy Kaling's the showrunner. It is the most accurate depiction of the Indian American experience. And I would argue the immigrant experience to a degree, right? It obviously gets really specific and really narrow on Indian stuff. But even the absurdity of the narration of John McEnroe, because that is such an Indian dad thing. Mm-hmm. John McEnroe is like a god does. <laughs> so yes, I've watched the show and it's excellent. That's, all That's awesome. I love it. I specifically... I really loved the Ganesh Puja episode. I thought they did. It's so strong because it's at a high school. You had to literally rent out a space. Yeah. And I think that there was just something really brilliant to trying to embrace your this cultural identity that makes you different. But at the same time, you might not feel cool about it. I just thought there was a lot of nuance there. And I loved it. I was curious what you thought. Well, you know, I'm going to say one more thing that's not related to being Asian, but about the show. 
most television shows are the showrunners are male for the most part. And so it's kind of the male perspective. And the example I use is Friends Mm -hmm. because that's kind of in the lexicon. All the women are fabulous looking. And with the exception of Joey, the guys are kind of schlubs. Let's let's be clear, right? (laughs) Ross and Chandler, they've got great personalities, but I think they're stand in for the writers, right? So these amazing looking women and these kind of okay, average looking guys, the stand in for what the writer or the showrunner wants. This show, Never Have I Ever, female showrunner, the women, they are very beautiful, but they're not meant to be model attractive. But the men are like gods on the show. <laughs> the men are so attractive. And so that was just my revelation. I turned to my wife and we're watching it. And we're, I kept saying, that guy's hot, right? And she's like, yeah, that guy's hot. Right? <laughs> so yeah. Distracting. The yeah, dad. But- I was like, I'm supposed to be sad right now, but he's so hot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dr. Surrender Suresh. Yeah. Or Dr. Whatever the hero character was. Yeah. But I saw that from a boy-girl perspective, not the Indian perspective or the Asian perspective. And that's another theme of the show, right? Just, but the perspective of the everyman is the, the girls in the show, not the boy. Yeah, totally. Totally. I thought that was really on point. But okay, I want to come back to you. Yes, and, of course. And Ganesh so yes. what is Ganesh this? And like, more importantly, why did you choose to do this? How did you even get to this? Yeah, absolutely. So Ganesh Space is a mindful organization that I started last year. It's particularly to raise elevated marginalized to elevate marginalized voices and to raise our collective consciousness to really work towards equality through mindfulness practice. Those are all a lot of big SAT words to say that when I started really diving deeper into my yoga and meditation practice, I really had a strong hunger and desire to find community and to find teachings quite frankly, from from people of color and from people who had history and experience that was similar to me. I mean, I grew up loosely Buddhist, but you look around New York City and unless you're in Chinatown, it's really, really hard to find a Buddhist teacher that is not white. So I really was compelled to find space to, to really explore the pillars of who we are as humans. And so last year, we really started to come together as a community and to have these deep conversations and workshops around these four assets that make everyone human, which is sexuality, gender, race, and being in our own bodies. And so it was really through this work that we looked at ways that the dominant sort of narrative uses that to gain power over us and to make us feel less than. And the spaces that I was offering was really turning that on its head, questioning it possibly for the first time for a lot of people in the room and for others continuing to do the work. So it was really, for me, something that I hadn't seen in the space where it's all about headstands or finding love and light, but not really actually doing the hard work and doing a lot of spiritual bypassing. So that was sort of the idea and why I really wanted to start a space in a community like this. And I'm really happy to say that during this time, both in COVID and particularly after the death of George Floyd and such a heightened conversation around anti-racism, the need for these type of offerings have increased and and at sort of an exponential rate. And so we're about to go through a really big development and launch in July where we can really be the space to have these type of conversations 
conversations about your well-being, about self-care, about advocacy and activism and where that all intersects with mindfulness and, and spirituality. So please keep a lookout. And if any of that resonates with you, go to GaneshSpaceScott.com and, and we're happy to have you be a part of our community and have it be your home. So. So what did mom and dad say when you first told them you were going to start this organization? What did mom and dad say? They didn't get it. What are you talking about? They were, <laughs> they were like, <laughs> they were like, you you want to help people? What what is this about, Kim? Okay, a quick quick detour. But how much does it pay? Right, <laughs> right exactly, exactly. That was it, right? So it was quick detour to answer this story. Was when I first started in social media, my dad thought I said I worked in social work. His response was, oh, I'm so proud of you for helping people, which I just think is funny. But yeah, no, when I started this, my mom, of course, the first question was, well, you're still going to do your consulting on the side to pay the bills, right? And I was like, yes. And... (laughs) I was like, you still taught me the things that I, I know. And I grew up loosely Mayana Buddhist. So my so it's very, the language isn't the same per se, but the ideas and intentions behind it are. And my mom was like, cool, I don't really get it, but I'm glad that you're helping people and keep teaching. And that was kind of the end of it. And as we all do, I kept on sending them links to events so they could wrap their head around it. And my mom was like, cool, cool. I'm glad you're doing this. (laughs) So I'm happy for the mildly excited slash tepid response, but I know that they're, they're, (laughs) they're proud of me. So that's all. Are mom and dad still back in Houston? Yeah, so both mom and dad are back in Houston. So is my sister and her family. She has uh, five boys. So and I think I heard you say you were raised Buddhist, but the some of the premise and mind, mindfulness you went with Ganesh. Yeah. Why Ganesh and not some Siddhartha or some yeah for sure for sure. Well, I think for our organization, we're not really affiliated with any sort of specific mindfulness lineage or practice. I think that's really important for me to not limit it that way. And I love what Ganesh stands for. Right? We mentioned it earlier: remover of obstacles. I think that there's a reason why. I mean, keep me honest, Raman, but like, he's the first deity that everybody prays to whenever they're doing their ritual because it's the first threshold that you have to cross over, and it's also typically the one deity who really welcomes and invites like new people into their spiritual path or personal growth journey, however you want to frame it, right? And that was really what was important to me, this idea of can we create a space where we can remove the obstacles, not only within ourselves, but within each other and collectively to make the practice more accessible and for us to kind of work towards this idea of equality and make it more than just a word and make it more than just us marching in the streets. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not going to lie. Uh, you probably know I'm a bad Hindu. <laughs> but I know enough to be dangerous. For me, Ganesh was, this is going to sound bad, because I was learning Hinduism and growing up and reading comic books at the same time. So the guy with the elephant head and superpowers and the guy with that monkey head, that's Hanuman. He's pretty awesome too. But yeah, I hear you on that. It's its the idea of what he stands for. Exactly. More than anything. The, the fun thing about Ganesh is I think every Indian person has either a picture or a little statue of Ganesh in their car because their mom makes them keep it there. Totally, totally. And I also like that he's not fully human. There's something about, to your point, Raman, being able to attach the story behind it and the symbolism and not keep, not have it so literal. Like I love 
all the yogic mythology and Hindu mythology that goes into a lot of these practices. And and I think there's so much teachings there that we can learn from. Although I say this as a not religious person anymore, but you have to be careful about that word, though, the word mythology. Yeah, totally. It'd be like walking into a church and saying, Merry Christmas. I love your mythology. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I hear you on that. I think it totally depends on the audience. And obviously, my intention is never to offend anyone. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. no. I was just, yeah. I've been called out on things like that. Thor, though. Had, Norse, Norse, I'm all about the Norse mythology because I had yeah. a, I had friends that were total atheists and they were pointing out their bookshelf to me and they're like, these are the history books. These are our fiction books. And on the fiction shelf was like all the religion books. I'm like, you guys. Wow. <laughs> you just had to punctuate that point, huh? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> there's two types of as an atheist, there's two types of atheists out there. There's the Richard Dawkins, Bill Maher, I'm going to punctuate it, you know, right, and they're like, right. hey, you be you kind. And I'm, that's kind of how I genuinely, my belief on religion, and I grew up in a religious household, right? It is a cultural expression of faith. And I underline the word cultural. It is so important because hundreds of years from now, no one's going to remember the Beatles or Britney Spears, maybe the Beatles, right? But like, they will remember Bud, uh, the stories of Bud, of of Ganesh, of Muhammad, et cetera, mm-hmm. because religion carries a lot more weight because it's woven into our, what's the word? Rituals, right? Yeah. Of the day, yeah. the pujas, the prayers, et cetera, the holidays, the food. Yeah. So I got to ask, growing up Vietnamese American, all the way back to that story in the ESL, the English as a second language class, how does your Vietnamese identity inform who you are? Because now you live in New York, you live in the melting pot where, yeah, there's a good fall place down the road, but it's- It's okay, to be honest. I think that's a great question. And for the record, I think Vietnamese food in New York City is just okay. I know it's a, a con- Where, where's the best where's the best Vietnamese food? Just is to it in say contribute controversial. Yeah, totally. Are you kidding? The Vietnamese food in Houston is I mean, I haven't been back to Vietnam, but I just don't think you can get more authentic than that. I've had Vietnamese food in Houston and it is out of this world. Yeah. It's can I can I can, can I admit something to you guys? Yeah. So I have been to Vietnam when I worked in Asia. But for a solid five years, I wasn't eating beef or pork. I eat everything now because my wife is Chinese American and it almost ended our relationship that I did not eat all these meats. <laughs> and one Good of our, we actually have, <laughs> no, but when I was in Vietnam, I didn't eat beef. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to have chicken pho. And my wife was like, sure, that's chicken broth. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, traveling Southeast Asia and not eating beef or pork. Oh my God. I missed out on so much. Yes, you did. There's still, <laughs> there's still time ramen. So there's still yeah. time. You can still go back. You can still go back. Exactly. So the question was, how am I still, How how's my relationship with my, my Vietnamese American identity now, right? Yeah. The language, the culture, the heritage. What do you do? What are the touchstones of Vietnamese culture that still exist in your life? Mm. Or are there any? Or Yeah, that's a great question. You know, kind of like my mom is ashamed that I don't celebrate Diwali. You yeah, know? Like you totally. Have of course I do. I mean, I think, yeah, it's interesting. In terms of just like straight up Vietnamese culture, I think the the one thing that I do still is like I celebrate that, right? Which is Lunar New Year for like Asia and Asian Americans. So that's a really big deal for me personally. And it also gives me an excuse to like bring over a whole bunch of people and do potluck and like have a whole bunch of good of Asian food. But that's a really important ritual for me. I mean, it only happens once a year, right? So 
there's that. And to be honest, like it's kind of a simple answer for me. I think the way that I still keep in touch with my Vietnamese identity is making sure that I'm like really connecting with my parents as much as possible, right? I think sometimes it's hard when your family's in a different state to like be on regular like chatting terms with them. But I, I make a really concerted effort, not just because my mom would like think I'm dead if I don't reply in like five seconds to a text. But like, I think also like, there's no one here for me to practice Vietnamese with, right? It's really easy to lose the language. And I think other ways that I've tried to connect has been Thich Nhat Hanh actually has his monastery up in Blue Cliff in upstate New York. That's probably like an hour and a half drive from here. And so I try to go up there as much as I can just because and it's like, it's a beautiful monastery. It's great. It's, it's Buddhist. I'm a, I'm a practicing Buddhist. So there's a lot of things that resonate with me there. But honestly, the thing that makes me feel the most at home is hearing people talk Vietnamese and the food is incredible. If you want good food, Vermont, Vietnamese food, go drive up there to Blue Cliff. <laughs> but yeah, I think. I love what you say about hearing the language because yeah. I don't speak much in the Punjabi, but when I hear it, mm-hmm. even if it's people I don't understand. It's a sense thing. Just mm-hmm. like all of a sudden, I, I feel like I'm in a room with my parents just when I hear people speak in this language, even though I don't know the words, I but I can tell people are speaking in Hindi, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So that's my big thing. There's a couple places in New York that do decent Vietnamese food, but I cook it a lot at home. And my cousin actually jokes that she's going to start a Yelp review of my uh, apartment address (laughs) and be like this is the best Vietnamese restaurant in New York City in the five boroughs so but yeah that's how I still if you you have me over if you have me over I'll leave you a five-star rating thank you I will definitely take you up on that offer for that yeah I'm coming over I'm coming over (laughs) (laughs) well then we'll do the next episode over that perfect I'm gonna ask you about your love life can we talk about that yeah sure go for it what do you want to know, Sharon? All the juicy I, details. I want to know: Are you in a Are you in a relationship? Have you ever brought anybody home that your parents raise an eyebrow at? Do they Do they have to be Vietnamese? That's do they have to I be Vietnamese? Know. Wow! Yeah, really great question. I remember when I was in high school and I had met my then now ex-husband, but then boyfriend, he was white, very Texan. And my mom, I remember asking my mom this very question because she never outrightly would say it, right? I wish he was Vietnamese. And I said, hey, does it make you, are you upset with the fact that he's white? And she was like, I'm not upset, but of course I wish he was. And I was like, why, right? And she was like, well, because they'll just get it right and that was as much explanation as I could get out of her which I think I really understand at a different level now right now that I'm yeah I do too now that I'm older right and I'm like oh yeah that's right when we got married and we did the dumb high which is a traditional Vietnamese engagement ceremony we wouldn't have to sit there for hours explaining what it is right all the things and And I'm sure your parents feel the same way. There's this push and pull of preservation, right? Of your culture when you come and immigrate here and you want your kids to be good Americans and to assimilate whatever in whatever form that makes sense, right? But you also don't want to lose the the pieces that made them who they are. So and yeah, it's interesting. When I started dating and letting my parents know that I was dating and they weren't Indian girls, right? 
there were arguments to be had. First, that you were dating and you weren't focusing on your studies. But And I was like, but you brought us here. I'm in Alabama. There aren't a lot of fish in the sea that are nice, Indian, Punjabi. Sure. And I was like, come on. But And I don't know if they were right. going down the path of arranged marriage. They weren't. But it was kind of that, yeah, we would prefer it. I actually get it more now because my wife is not Indian. Sharon's husband's not Indian or, or, or Chinese. <laughs> <Yep>. Yeah. <laughs> but I do love the same, literally the same thing in this podcast. I love learning. I'm learning so much about Chinese culture because of my wife. I'm learning and I don't have to go to China to get it, right? I literally can talk to her and learn about what is the good duck sauce versus what I, now I know it. I have a point of view on hoisin and my brain's a hoisin sauce now. Absolutely. So I'm so proud that. of you, Raman. She's Aww. training you well. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> I very much relate to that, Raman. So I'm in a partnership now with a woman and she's Jewish and we've been doing Jewish food all week. It's like our new thing during quarantine is to have like themed cuisine weeks, right? So I'm learning. We, 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 had an, we, we did our grocery shopping one week at H Mart, which is like a Korean grocery store. We had an Asia week at the house. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's H Mart so is the best. H Mart is H -Mart. the best. They I have do. the best ice cream selection there. They got really good stuff. But I mean, are you so what's Jewish food? Are you having like brisket and latkes and stuff? Yeah, matzo ball soup, oh, latkes. Yeah. She usually makes a big tub of it, right? Of latkes and I just burrow through it. <laughs> it's amazing. So I, I just have to ask, I mean, mom and dad seem like they are super supportive of you. They sort of were like, why didn't you marry a Vietnamese guy? But what did they say when you brought home your Jewish girlfriend? Yeah, totally. Were they like, well, can't, 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 we're okay with it being a <laughs> yeah, girl. Can you find a nice Vietnamese girl? <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I had so much trepidation around it. I was so nervous and, and I came into my queerness older in life. And it's funny, I was like talking to my cousin who I'm really close with. And she was like, did you know that the most recent Vietnamese bachelorette, she like, chose a woman you should just watch this episode with your parents and they'll be totally okay with it if you just watch it with them and i was like that's kind of brilliant i'm not sure if i want to go that route but i'll put it in my back pocket yeah so my quote-unquote coming out story to my mom i think is hilarious because i was a nervous rack pacing back and forth chugging all this water and she was like what is wrong with you right and because I all the things go through your head, right? I was like, oh, my God, are they going to disown me? All the things. And and I've had a lot of queer friends who have had a lot of challenges with this. And and they they weren't even Asian, right? It's just like coming right, with like a right. different, different sort of implications. <laughs> right. Oh, shit, this is the end of it. And she was like, are you dating anyone? And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And like, <laughs> just like standing there in the kitchen. And she was like, I remember it so distinctly because she was like washing the dishes and she like stopped the dishes and she was like, what is wrong with you? And like turned around and I was just like, mom, I'm dating men and women and I just wanted to let you know that. And she just stared at me with the longest silence, right? It was so intense. I it was probably just five seconds. It felt like an eternity. And, and I was like, I hope you're okay with that. 
and I was like, I love you, please. Like, you know, just started sobbing. And I was like, well, I don't want this. And she was like, chill out. <laughs> she was like, let's bring it down a couple of notches. And she was like, like, quit being so dramatic. Yeah. Exactly. She was like, it's okay. I knew you weren't going to be an engineer. It's okay, baby. Exactly. It's okay. <laughs> and then she was like, here's the most important question. And I was like, okay. And she was like, are they losers? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> and, I was like, <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> she was like, I just care if they have a job and then they're going to treat you right. And so oh, I'm no. asking if they're losers, right? And I was like, right. and I was like, some of them are losers. And she was like, okay, well, let's take out the trash. And I was like, okay. And so that's the story with my mom and my and my dad and my my sister have been all great about it. And when they met Jess, my partner, they love her. She's hard not to love. So it's been a fairly good ride. Some bumps here and there as expected, but I couldn't really ask for a smoother way in. That's great. Mom has come a long way. Mom has come a long way. Mom has come a long way. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) All moms across America. All moms across America. Exactly. I think we're ready for the speed round. Are you ready for speed round, Kim? Yeah. What's the speed round? All right. (laughs) Best way to answer a question with the question. (laughs) We're going to ask you a series of questions and you're going to have to answer them. First thing that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. What's one thing about you no one expects? Oh, I'm a black belt. You're a black belt in what? In Taekwondo. Nice. We had a Taekwondo guest that we spoke to recently. That's great. What's a book or a movie that has characters that you really relate to? That I really relate to? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if I'm relating to anyone right now. I just The first thing that came to mind was <laughs> Little Fires Everywhere. I just really loved all aspects of that show and relate to both the moms, even though I'm not a mother. What a strange answer, but that's, that's my answer. (laughs) Good answer. Good answer. What's one place you want to go back to? One place that I want to go back to. I want to go back to Arizona. It's magical there. Which part of Arizona? I went to Nogales, but I'd love to go to Sedona and just be in the desert more. Yeah. Sedona's beautiful. Yeah. I'm going to have a house out there one day. You can come visit me. I would love that. I'll cook Vietnamese food. You're and I will leave both of and I will leave both of you a really good Yelp review. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> What's your favorite mom dish? Oh man, my favorite mom dish. I have so many favorite mom dishes. My mom's a really really good cook, which is actually a really high bar for me to to fill. So, I think my mom my favorite mom dish or favorite dish in general is there's this Vietnamese soup where it's made she like stews and braises pork for 48 hours in this tomato broth with onions and scallions. And you're not really able to find it in Vietnamese restaurants, which makes it even more elusive and (laughs) alluring for me because I can't get it anywhere other than at home from my mom. It's a very sort of home style country dish, but I love it. And there's vermicelli inside and there's some veggies, but it just really, really, reminds me of home and it's just that warm feeling in your belly that I get when I eat it and all of the feelings too that come with that warm feeling so it's a it's a win-win all the way this podcast is off air we always ask about what you have for breakfast it's like sound check and then we always end with food this this podcast is the worst no it's the the best it's the best (laughs) I'm so hungry to me food food and culture go hand in hand so I think this is perfect I think the next podcast we have Remen should all be all about food. 
What's your least favorite food? What do you mean? My least favorite dish from my mom? No, just no. Oh, no, no, we don't want to get you in trouble. Are you kidding? From From anything that you dislike eating, what is something you don't like to eat? (laughs) I really don't like licorice at all. That flavor, that anise flavor, it's just too bitter and I don't don't get it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, me neither. Yeah. So my mom and I, one thing I got from my mom is I love the taste of licorice. And so we have jelly beans left over from like the home Easter egg hunt we did. And I get to eat all the black jelly beans. I don't have to even argue with my daughter about it because I get them. Yeah. Mmm, licorice. (laughs) Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? This is such a great question. I love this question mainly because I was a reporter and journalist for a long time and often thought about this. And I would choose two people. One would be Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who wrote Radical Dharma. And I'm studying her work right now. And it's really talking about how you can use Buddhist philosophy to dismantle white supremacy. And I think she's amazing and and definitely a role model and someone I would love to interview and learn more intimately from. And I was really inspired by PBS's Asian American documentary recently. I went down a really deep rabbit hole and recommend anyone to watch it, whether you're Asian American or not. And Patsy Mink came up in one of the highlights and interviews. And she's basically the first woman of color to ever serve in the United States. And that was just so awesome to me to see that and to be really inspired by all the activism and everything she had to overcome. So I would love to talk to both of them and just really, really learn from all of their struggles and triumphs. Okay. Last question. What does being a model minority mean for you? Hmm. Yeah. I think being a model minority to me means really evaluating what that term even means and being the model that best suits yourself. I think there's so many ways and so much history that is embedded into that term that causes separateness between communities of color. And I think really just being ourselves at our truest and authentic state is really the most modeling that we can do for ourselves. And and there is really, really radical power and I think liberation, which I know is a loaded word, but to just simply being at ease with ourselves. So that is a perfect answer. Thank you. Kim, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Raymond and Sharon. I really, really appreciate the time. Thanks so much. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode. So when I started doing comedy and going to auditions, I remember trying to hide my act 
accent. Believe me, if I could do an American accent, I would do it because it works for my benefit in order to get more roles. But the reason that I was doing it is because I was embarrassed. I didn't have that confidence because I wanted to get accepted. But now what's fun is once you start accepting who you are and really not caring what people say, that's when you start getting the parts because people always gravitate to originality and to realness. I think that's the thing that everybody goes through. The key is to always in any situation be who you are. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.